Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about paradoxical thoughts. Look, we all have seemingly absurd or self-contradictory thoughts, like that undeniable relief you feel when a friend cancels plans. They're usually thoughts we keep to ourselves, but I, for one, am super glad our storytellers shared their thoughts out loud. Our first story is from Ophira Eisenberg. Ophira is a stand-up comic and host of NPR's trivia show, Ask Me Another. She's also a regular host and teller with The Moth and has appeared on Comedy Central, This Week at the Comedy Cellar, The New Yorker Festival, Kevin Hart's LOL Network, HBO's Girls, Gotham Live, The Late Late Show, The Today Show, and VH1. Her comedy special, Inside Joke, is available on Amazon and iTunes. Her story was recorded at our go-to venue in New York City, Caveat, in July this year. And if you've ever had to fight off unsolicited advice, or if you've ever secretly hated something that everyone else is really gung-ho about, you'll very much relate to Ophira's story. Here's Ophira. For me, the hardest part of going through surgery and radiation for breast cancer was talking to other people about it. That's not true, it was having it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also talking to other people. Uh, and having it, I say, you know, it was, it was the feeling of being in a holding pattern for two years. Uh, part of that was because when they found some, they, we had surgery to remove it, but then they went back and found more. And I just felt like they would always be finding it. Like if they looked, they would keep finding it. And it would go on and on and on, and I would never, ever again be able to take a step forward. And, uh, you know, we, we live in this world where there's a lot of people throwing around things like, live in the present, embrace the moment. But have you ever been forced to live in the present? It is horrible. 
It is fucking jail, okay? Now, do not live in the present. Think about tomorrow. Plan for the future. That is freedom, okay? And I really did not like telling people about it, and I told very few people of what, what I was going through because I didn't want to hear their responses. You know, because especially with something like cancer, something that is so scary to people and complicated and nebulous, and what you end up hearing a lot is their made-up ideas, not based on scientific fact or even expertise or experience, just thoughts that they have had. <laughs> about how cancer happens and how it is cured, and you get to hear about them when you're in your most vulnerable moment, you know? A lot of like, I hear positivity and hope. That's what it's all about. You're like, thank you, it never occurred to me. They say many cancers come from stress. Were you stressed out? I'm like, oh, so it was that year that I was worried about paying rent. That was the year that I got breast cancer. It's my fault. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You know, because the answer of uh, it's random or it, we don't really understand, like cells do weird shit, that medicine hasn't really caught up to figuring out why, it's not very comforting. Nobody wants to hear that. I didn't want to hear it, but some of us have to live with it. I spent so many days at Sloan Kettering. And I, let me tell you, I was searching for comfort and relief, and that is not the place. It is... <laughs> the decor, I will just say, the, the decor, there is no decor, and I know that's purposeful. The whole place is decorated in like muted beige and gray. There, there, is, uh, there are some paintings on the wall. There are all these generic landscapes and flowers like created by, by AI almost. <laughs> and every floor is the exact same. So if you end up on the wrong floor, you have no idea because there's no reason why you would know. <laughs> And I know why that is. It's, uh, I, well, I assume it's because they don't want you to attach onto an object or even a color while you're going through pain and trauma. I mean, it's amazing what you attach onto. I do remember my surgeon's earrings because they were the Chanel C. And I was like, how much money are you fucking making? <laughs> so mad as I was going under. Uh, the only thing that stuck out in any of those muted beige rooms was the, the pink ribbon, the pink ribbon of breast cancer. And okay, listen, I know that pink ribbon campaign and all of it uh, brings a lot of people a lot of stuff. It brings hope, it brings levity, it brings awareness, it brings community. I just didn't relate to it. I didn't like it because to me it felt too, I don't know, bright. Like I just wasn't in a mindset of throwing on a boa and cheersing with a Cosmo and going on a bike ride. You know, like I didn't relate to it. To me, it was like sprinkling glitter on a pile of shit. I felt, 
I felt a little silenced by the pink ribbon, and I didn't even have the worst case of breast cancer. I didn't want to hang out with the pink ribbon people. I wanted, I wanted to hang out with like the women with breast cancer that were like drinking rye in basements, living to Joni, listening to Joni Mitchell albums over and over again, you know. But they don't have that group. <laughs> And I just, I felt, I ended up feeling very repelled by it. Every time I saw it, I was a little bit angry at that pink ribbon, because it also made me feel like I should be better, a better survivor. It made me feel like I should bounce back faster, and I should be bouncing back in a bubbly and fun way. It was, uh, the two years were basically up. I was told, I was done surgery, radiation, and uh, I was told, you know, Here's your statistical chance of uh, having a recurrence, and we'll see you in a year. And uh, anyone who's been through any kind of medical thing, you know, I, I think you probably too wish that there was some sort of decompression chamber, like, you know, when scuba divers come up too quickly, they, to avoid the bends, they go in a decompression chamber before they're just thrown out into reality. I wanted that. I wanted to go through some sort of chamber because I, I wasn't ready. I had no idea how to take a step forward. What I ended up doing was I accepted a last minute gig in Los Angeles uh, to do stand-up comedy. And I, I did it because it felt like the old me. Like I wanted to go back to the past. I thought, oh, this would be great. I'll, I'll go to LA, I'll do some stand-up gig, I'll drink like a shitty Chardonnay on the plane, and then I'll do my show and then pass out in a king bed, and it will be like old times, you know? I was just so looking forward to being in a hotel room and looking at myself in the mirror and seeing nothing that reminded me of anything of the last two years. And so I was, uh, I was at JFK waiting to get on my flight, and my flight was definitely filled with people that were mostly residents of LA, because you can just spot them. They were all dressed in LA colors, like pastel yellows and blues, and peddling around in bedazzled flip-flops. You know, while I was in like the New York uniform, just black, 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 black. <laughs> And uh, I go to give my boarding pass, and I notice that the people checking us in, the agents are wearing um, pink outfits. And I'm thinking, I thought Delta's colors were like blue or red, but you know, whatever, I haven't traveled in a long time, maybe I forgot. And as I'm boarding the plane, I'm looking at their pink outfits, and I'm like, holy shit. Because I have uh, not registered that it is October, which is Breast Cancer Month, and Delta is fully committed to the Pink Ribbon campaign. I sit down in my seat and I am accosted by a flight attendant who shoves a think, a drink pink cocktail menu into my hands and just tells me that part of the proceeds from my cocktail will go towards breast cancer awareness. And I was like, I am aware of breast cancer. And I just shove it violently in my seat pocket and I pull my black sweater over my face and I'm, I'm just steaming. Uh, and I'm just thinking, will, will I ever have a chance to take a breath? Just to take a moment to heal. 
I get off the plane and uh, I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna get in the cab and go to my hotel. I'll have a, I'll have my dumb shitty Chardonnay at the hotel and it will feel great. And uh, I get in the cab. He's got the radio on and I immediately start hearing that you know some Chevrolet lot is having a breast cancer and I'm like, turn off that radio. And we start driving towards my hotel and I'm thinking, it's fine. Yeah, it's old me, it's old me. I'm in a cab, I'm in LA, I'm going towards a hotel. And you know, I'm looking out at LA scene and it's just so bright, the, you know, the, the sun is just bleaching everything that I'm seeing. And we're, we're coming towards my hotel and I see it in the distance and I'm looking at it and uh, I see that there is a, there's a church beside my hotel. And as we're getting closer, you know, the sun is in my eyes, but I see that on this church, there is a huge ribbon. There is a huge ribbon on the steeple of this church that is right beside my hotel, like a 40 foot tall ribbon that I'm like, I'm probably gonna get the hotel room whose window looks right on that fucking ribbon this entire time. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm never gonna get beyond this because it's gonna follow me everywhere and I'm never gonna be able to escape or move forward and I can't do anything about what, where I am at and I can't fix myself and I can't fix the scar and they're always gonna find more cancer. And as we get a little closer, uh, I, I start to see this ribbon clearly and more clear. And then I see that it is red. And I just go, AIDS! <laughs> yes, AIDS! Fucking thank you, AIDS! I actually hear myself and I <laughs> physically clasp my own mouth in shame. And I look at the taxi driver, if he is registering an expression, he's not. Uh, and I'm thinking, I don't even know who this person is, what they've been through, who they've lost, what their experience is, and that whoa, I have lost grip of a lot. And uh, we pull up and I say, hey, uh, sorry. And he just goes, 42.95 for whatever the price was. And I remember that amazing, weird relationship that we have with cab drivers where it's just like, nothing ever happened. <laughs> and I get out of the cab and I'm just standing in front of that church next to my hotel looking at this ribbon. And I will admit to you, I was giggling. I was giggling at me being a colossal idiot, <laughs> at the absurdity, at how stupid everything is, how much suffering there is everywhere. And I thought, you know what, I gotta redeem myself. I gotta redeem myself. There's a church right here. You know what, tomorrow I'm gonna go into that church and I'm gonna pray. I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed before, but I'm gonna learn how to pray. And I'm gonna pray for everyone who suffered and everyone who's going through some medical thing and everyone who feels uh, a lot of trauma about anything with their health and I'm gonna pray for them. I said, I thought I'm gonna do that tomorrow. And I went into my hotel thinking, that is the first time I've thought about tomorrow. Thank you. Woo!
That was Ophira. To learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make Story Clutter happen, but we know that can be intimidating and might not speak to you. So maybe becoming a Story Clutter donor is more your speed. Story Clutter donors play an increasingly important role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power of these stories and this mission, please consider donating to the Story Clutter at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports us. Our next story is from Richard Kemeny. Richard is a freelance science and travel writer based in London. His work has appeared in New Scientist, The Atlantic, Science, Hakai, the BBC, and National Geographic. He used to produce the Economist Science and Tech podcast, Babbage, and has reported from several countries for PRI's The World. London Story Clutter fans might also recognize him as the producer and co-host of our London show. His story was recorded at the Aces and Eights Saloon Bar in London in May this year. Richard's story is all about how weird and complicated emotions can be, which, if you're alive and human, is something we can all relate to. Here's Richard. So uh, it's 2019, and uh, I'm on a boat, and I'm in America, in Massachusetts, whale country. And I'm doing some whale watching, uh, watching them kind of jumping, rolling around on the ocean, uh, taking photos and videos, uh, basically just doing whaley stuff. And uh, I get a text, I look down, that's my mum, and she's asking what I'm up to. And so I send a, a video of what I'm doing and talk about it for a bit. Just to backtrack, I'm in America on a fellowship. Basically, the idea is that journalists like me uh, go and spend time with scientists and hang out with them for a week and do science and figure out that they're actually just real people and not just names on a page. Um, and our week was all about algae. So we go out into this bay, Wakawoit Bay, um, which is filled with nitrogen because of all the people living there and the algae's going crazy. So we go out on these rowing boats and we, we scoop up all the algae and all the little critters that are swimming with them. And then we take it back to the lab every day and uh, we dry it out and weigh it and uh, count it out and count the species. And it's like very methodical, kind of therapeutic in like a mildly suicidally boring kind of way. <laughs> um, and this whale watching was the penultimate day. So we had a day off and uh, yeah, so that was nice. And then I go back that evening and go to sleep and then I wake up in the morning uh, to a text from my dad and it just says call me when you get this. Uh, never good. Um, and I realized just looking down at the message that my mum had died. Um, basically me and my mum had had like a kind of rocky time throughout some parts of my life uh, mostly because I wanted to go on adventures and she wanted me to stay at home in the nest. But a few years before this fellowship, I'd gone to Brazil, moved abroad, and even though I knew she wouldn't like it, funnily enough, the distance actually kind of uh, brought us closer. Uh, we would Skype a lot. But at the same time, she'd been getting progressively more ill. Um, she had cancer when I was 15, and she had a lot of treatment, and obviously that gave her many more years of life, but by the end, uh, there were a lot of complications with, with the treatments, and she started kind of losing her voice a bit. Um, Towards the end, we would do Skypes, and I would just kind of talk at her about what I was doing. Um, luckily for both of us, we both enjoyed the sound of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah um and, and i think at that point you know when i was out there in america and watching the whales i think she was i think she was happy for me to be having adventures and, and living my life perhaps because she knew that hers was coming to an end so that morning i called my dad and he tells me to be strong and honestly i kind of felt like laughing at the cliche but uh i wasn't really in the mood i was in a country that I didn't really know, surrounded by people I didn't know on this course. And not only that, but it was the final day, so we had to do our presentations about what we learned that week. And uh, honestly, it was quite good to have that distraction. So I went out and did probably the best Audi presentation anyone's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a room full of scientists, I was just throwing out facts and statistics left, right and center, and just kind of burying all the feelings. <laughs> And I made it through to midday, which, uh, you know, I was very pleased with. Uh, but then the entire fellowship was over. So then I was just staring down the barrel of an entire afternoon off with nothing to do about, uh, apart from think about my dead man. So I did what I think any self-respecting Brit of drinking age would do. And I went down to the local bar and got shit-faced all afternoon. Uh, but drinking alone in America, thankfully, is socially acceptable and possibly even encouraged so, so that's good um so i did that but then you know drinking alone is one thing and, and flying home to a funeral alone is is very different uh it doesn't really matter if you're in terminal whatever of jfk airport one of the busiest airports in the world um if you're surrounded by people you still feel very alone and you know even if you're grieving none of them really care uh the more people were around me the the lonelier i felt so I get home for the funeral and then and then fly back to Brazil. Uh, and then 2020 rolls around, everyone's favorite year. And COVID is there and it's, yeah, it's getting pretty bad, uh, particularly in Brazil. A lot of people are dying around the world. And I obviously, like everyone else, realize it's terrible, but I kind of go through this weird experience, which I thought was unique, but maybe, maybe people who've lost someone close maybe will understand. Um, I kind of realized that it was terrible, all these people were dying, but even though I, I mean, I can actually feel empathy at that, at that point, I just couldn't, I couldn't connect to this, uh, global, you know, collective trauma. I couldn't feel what everyone else was feeling. I just felt kind of numb. And another feeling that I had, which I'm not particularly proud of, uh, was that I knew that all these people dying was terrible, but part of me actually felt glad that other people were experiencing some of the pain that I'd had to go through alone the year before and, you know, experiencing some of the loneliness of loss. So in Brazil that time, obviously it's locked down and everything's closed apart from this cat shop near our house. And so each week me and my girlfriend go and we look at the rabbits jumping around and listen to all the nice tropical birds. And one thing led to another, and eventually we bring home a fish. And it's, <laughs> it's an amazing fish. It's a dragon baiter, and it's got like these silvery white scales and the flowing red plumy tail out back. And this guy's got a lot of character, a lot of sass. And he's a great fish. Uh, we named him Wanderson after the health secretary of Brazil at that time. <laughs> and, you know, I've had a pretty good, you know, I get on well with fish so through my life. I've had some good, good times, mostly granted on like when I get back from the pub and talk to them, but they always seem to be very receptive. They, they come to the front of the tank and, and talk back and, you know, they're good listeners and they, they give good advice. Uh, but Wanson was like fish plus, um, turns out he, he likes music as well. 
Um, I would play tunes and he would kind of come to the front of the tank and just swim around a bit and, you know, do some jiving. So, so that was nice to kind of find out that he liked that. And the pandemic goes on and then Bill Withers dies. Uh, great musical giant. Uh, the world grieves for him. And I think this is a great opportunity to introduce Wanderson to his entire back catalogue. <laughs> so we sit there one afternoon in the sun, uh, drinking Negronis <laughs> and listening to all of Bill Withers. And I'm there, yeah, with my, my fish, now my now my firm friend and confidant. Uh, it was a lovely date, I would say. <laughs> um, but then, you know, after a few weeks, Wanderson starts to kind of act weird. He starts drooping down on one side and swimming in a slightly strange way. It's not like typical fish behavior. Basically, we hadn't done too much research before we got him, and uh, we didn't really get him the best tank. I mean, it had like a nice little plastic frog and uh, some plastic plants and maybe even a castle, but no real filtration of any kind because <laughs> um, it was just a glass bowl. <laughs> Um, and so he starts to get sick, we think, and uh, we decide to take him to the vet. So one day we jump in the car, me and my girlfriend at the front, Wanderson in the back, here really silent. <laughs> and we drive to the vet and we're sitting there in the waiting room, looking at him, feeling kind of sad. And then we go through into the operating theatre and I'm looking around at all the pictures on the wall of animals that people normally take to the vet, like cats <laughs> or dogs. But we're there with our fish. <laughs> and uh, we, we put him on the table and uh, start, start kind of discussing his health. And obviously I'm looking at him and I'm feeling guilty that he got ill so quickly and feeling kind of sad, but the idea of three fully grown humans standing around and talking about the health of a tiny fish is a really <laughs> hilarious moment. And uh, I'm sure Wanson appreciated the attention too, cheeky little scamp. <laughs> so so we, we take him home, we go to the pet shop again, we get in the best fish medication on the market and this amazing tank. Um, it's like a palace. Still the still the same friendly frog. Uh, real plants this time, which is nice. And amazing filtration. And it's basically like a marine protected area all for one fish. <laughs> and we think, yeah, he's going to get better. Uh, we wait for weeks and, and watch him, just hoping. But, you know, he doesn't. I think maybe we left it too late. Um, so... One day I make the difficult executive decision to kill my friend. Still talking about the fish. <laughs> um, and like, killing someone you like is not something to be taken lightly. So I do my research, uh, watch some YouTube videos and try and find out the most humane way to kill a fish. And... Um, I feel kind of bad actually because the volume was on when I was watching this video. So one time I was sitting there with his little BDI looking at me. Um, but I find this nice Australian lady who seems to be an expert at, at dispatching fish. And I watch as she kills her finned friend. And then uh, I learn from her basically. Turns out the best way to kill a fish is clove oil. Uh, clove is obviously delicious to smell and great with. Uh, with cooked meats, but uh, it's toxic to fish. So you put a few drops of clove oil in the in the tank, and they kind of go to sleep. And then you put in a few more, and, and then they just fade away to uh, fish heaven. And so I decided that, that that's the way I'm going to do it. And you know, murder is a terrible thing, obviously. But I think why not make an event of it? So um, <laughs> I put I put on Bill Withers because he likes that. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, we're sitting there listening. It's just like the good old times, just a bit more murdery. <laughs> and uh, then I scoop him out of his tank and put him in this little Tupperware box that he loves so much. <laughs> and I'm looking down at him, seeing him swimming around. I'm like, maybe you'll. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe I should just wait a bit longer, you know? Uh, maybe he'll get better, but I, I realise I'm just kind of talking myself out of it. So there we are. And uh, Bellwether is still playing. I, like, I'll tell you now the irony of his song Lean On Me playing while I'm about to assassinate. It's <laughs> really not lost on me. And I'm pretty sure Wonson actually likes the joke too. Before you can find any of this funny. Um, so I reach for the clove oil and I put in a few drops and I watch him kind of slow down swimming and then, and then just lie on his side. And then I put in a few more, maybe too many, and um, eventually he just kind of fades away. And I didn't like, I love him, but I didn't check his pulse or anything. You know, <laughs> but uh, after a while, it, he, he was definitely dead. Um, and it was sad. I mean, I was just hit with the same kind of cold grief that I felt before. Maybe people who've lost a pet know that it can be exactly the same as losing a human friend. It's just kind of, it's just another moment marked in my, in my, in my life that I know that I'm never going to speak to this person again. It's a fish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and not only that, not only am I sad about it, but then I realized that this time I have to dispose of the body. So I take, uh, once and out, put him into this, uh, little polystyrene takeaway pot and then, uh, Put him into the freezer and find him a nice spot on the top shelf next to all the other frozen fish. <laughs> and then the afternoon goes on and I drink a bit more, a few more Negronis. And as I'm sat there, I realised that something's kind of changed for me. Um, basically experiencing this real personal grief again um, has kind of reconnected me to the pain that everyone else around the world was feeling at that time. And maybe, you know, that was Wonson's role for me in my life. Uh, he was there to bring back into the fold. And obviously it's not the greatest of shared experiences, but uh, it really it really feels good to be back. So thank you, Wonson. And uh, I'm sorry we didn't just get you a better tank. Thanks a lot. That was Richard. If you'd like to learn more about him or see some pictures of the infamous Wanderson, you can visit our website, storycollider.org. Our website is just one way to connect with us, but there are so many other ways, and we'll hope you use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storycollider.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to a recording session of one of our shows or want to start your own Story Collider show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. The Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, the Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Paula Croxon, Christine Gentry, Michaela Agapiu, and me. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brinson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, in honor of the upcoming elections on November 7th, I'll be back with stories about the political side of science. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Listening.